Welcome back to the Mysterious Incidents Podcast. I'm your host, Ella Harwood. Last week, we discussed the strange case of the boy in the box. This episode, I will be going over the horrifying Kelly Cabin murders, a crime that has given ideas for many of the spooky cabin horror movies. This is a brutal unsolved case that happened in 1981 in Keddy, California. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a disclaimer that we will be describing some horrific, brutal crime scenes, so if you're not into that, you might want to skip over this episode. In 1991, the Sharp family moved and lived in Cabin 28, where they had lived for a year at the Keddy Cabin Resorts. On the morning of April 12th, 1981, Sheila Sharp returned back to the cabin 28 where her family was staying after sleeping in the next door neighbor's house. What the then 14-year-old discovered inside the four-room cabin instantly became one of the most grisly crime scenes in modern American crime history. Sheila found the bodies of her mother, Sue Sharp, her teenage brother, John Sharp, and John's high school friend, Dana Wingate, brutally murdered inside the cabin. The three of them had been bound by tape and had been stabbed, strangled, or bludgeoned. Sheila's younger sister, Tina Sharp, who was 12 at the time, was nowhere to be found. In another bedroom, the two youngest Sharp boys, Ricky and Greg, and their friend and neighbor, Justin Smart, were strangely found unharmed and still asleep. As I had mentioned before, the Sharp family was living in Cabin 28, and they were actually living in pretty bad poverty. And this is because Sue had recently divorced her husband and brought the family from Connecticut to Caddy, California. The six family members, Sue, who was 36, John, who was 15, Sheila, who was 14, Tina, who was 12, Rick, who was 10, and Greg, who was five, were very friendly with their neighbors at the Caddy Resort. On the night of April 11th, Sheila had slept over at her friend's house down the road. John and his friend Dana, who was 17, hitchhiked to a nearby town for a party, returned later that evening. The rest were pretty much just chilling in the cabin, as well as neighbor Justin Smart, who was 12. When Sheila returned home the next morning, she found the brutal scene of her mother, older brother, and his friend bloodied on the living room floor. Sheila immediately bolted back to her friend's house, where her friend's dad helped retrieve the younger boys from the window so they didn't have to see the crime scene. The murders had been extremely and notably violent, and investigators were called about an hour after Sheila discovered the body. Side note, that's a really long time. Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive on the scene and instantly reported a lot of blood and it was everywhere. I'm talking everywhere. The amount of blood stressed to investigators that the victims had been moved around from their original positions in which they had originally been murdered in. Blood was on the walls, on the victim's shoes, on Sue's bare feet, Tina's bedding, the furniture, the doors, and on the back steps. John was the closest to the front door. He was laying face up, covered in blood, and bound with medical tape and his throat had been slit. Dana was on the floor next to him, but he was face down and his head had been bashed in and it was laying partially on a pillow. He had been strangled and his ankles were tied with electrical wire, 
which was also around John's ankles, so the two were connected. Sue, Sheila's mother, had been partially covered by a blanket, but the blanket did not hide her gruesome injuries. On her side, she was naked from the waist down, she was gagged with a bandana and her own underwear, and then tape on top of her mouth. It was clear that she struggled, and she had an imprint of the butt of a pellet gun on the side of her head, and her throat was also slit. They all had blunt force trauma to the head by hammer, as well as many stab wounds. A bent steak knife was on the floor, as well as a butcher knife and a claw hammer that were bloodied sat side by side on a wooden table near the kitchen. It would take the police hours to figure out that Tina was missing. And once they figured that out, then the FBI showed up. Doug Thomas, the sheriff at the time, and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, were not initially able to discern an apparent motive. The murders at Cabin 28 appeared to be random acts of cruelty. There were no signs of forced entry. However, a fingerprint was found near the front steps. Although the younger boys originally all claimed to sleep through the whole massacre, Justin Smart did later say he saw Sue with two men in the house that night. He said one had a mustache and short hair, and the other was clean-shaven with long hair, and one of the men had a hammer. Justin said that when John and Dana got home and saw these men, they argued with them, which quickly escalated to a very violent fight and then one of the men took Tina out the back door. Allegedly, a lot of potential evidence was collected, but this crime was way before DNA testing, so not much really came of it. So now that I have described the scene, let's get into the theories. Immediately, the two lead suspects were Martin Smart, Justin's father, and his house guest, who was an ex-con, John or Beau Budebe, who was known to be connected with organized crime in the area. Now, this is because the men were seen at a bar together the night before, and they were behaving strangely, and they were also wearing black suits. Now, it would be another three years after the crime that Tina was found, and this was all because a man had discovered a human skull in a county about 30 to 50 miles from Keddy, and he called in a tip, and he claimed that it was immediately Tina's skull. Side note, why did they not do anything with this? The fact that this man had claimed immediately that it was Tina's skull from the Keddy cabin is crazy. I mean, it was three years after. It was also to the date, like the anniversary. So this now makes the Keddy cabin murders a quadruple homicide. Sheriff Thomas had resigned from the investigation three months in, and his handling of the case in retrospect would be considered corrupt at worst. In 2016, Sheila said to CBS Sacramento, quote, I was told the suspects were told to get out of town. So to me, that means it was covered up, unquote. A cover-up is another very popular theory especially after the public found out about the mishandling of evidence. It came to light that Marilyn Smart, Justin's mom and Martin's wife, had left her husband on the day of the murder discovery. Afterward, she brought in a handwritten letter 
signed from her husband, and it read, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through? Great. What else do you want? This is crazy, so this letter was not viewed as a confession, and there wasn't even a follow-up. They kind of just put this letter in a box and just pretended it never existed. Sheila has said many times that she really believes this is a cover-up by the police, and that Martin Smart really did this. But Sheriff Doug Thomas contradicted this all by saying he passed a polygraph test. Now, back in 1981, how reliable is that? Like, that's crazy. Now, besides this letter, a few years later, a therapist from where Martin had moved mentioned that he confessed to killing Sue and Tina. But what did they do? Absolutely nothing. It was later confirmed that Martin and the sheriff were very close. The last and most widely accepted theory is that Martin, Marilyn, and Sue were in a love triangle. It was believed Martin and Sue were having an affair and that Sue was counseling Marilyn to leave her husband, who she had said was abusive. And when Martin discovered this, he enlisted Bo to take Sue out of the picture. Currently, investigators believe there are a handful of people that could have been involved in this crime and who are still all alive. So now that I've brought up three popular theories, I'd like to welcome Mally to the Mysterious Incidents podcast, who is a psychology student. Thanks for joining me today, Mally. So before we get started, could you just quickly describe in detail what you do? Well, currently I'm a full-time student working on my master's degree in counseling psychology. I have an undergraduate bachelor's of arts honors degree in psychology as well, with a concentration in social and personality psych specifically, as well as a little bit of neuroscience background. So, Mally, I'm assuming you're familiar with this case. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar. Okay. So, my first question for you then is, from a psychology perspective, what theory do you believe makes the most sense? Again, I think that there is a lot of evidence in this case, which was circumstantial, because obviously nobody was ever charged, and there was no trial. All we have are suspects and theories. I think that it's really difficult to make a concrete decision about what happened. I do think that a lot of evidence in the case, again, was really poorly handled. And the theories surrounding community involvement, those ones all seem to make a lot of sense given the amount of knowledge that a lot of people seem to have but not share in this case. And like the number of like alleged witnesses who haven't actually come forward publicly. I don't know. Like, I think that they're red flag in the mix, right? Like we have this guy, Marty, and we're all like, we can point our finger at him because he's one individual, but I think I sort of subscribe more to the theory that given how weird everybody sort of seems to act revolving the case, there had to be outside involvement as well to some extent. I agree. I think that there was definitely some aspects of cover-up in this case. Total mishandling of evidence. My next question is how could someone do this to someone else? Like, how is someone capable of this? That is like, it's a really tricky question, right? Because motive obviously is a big player in, in violent crimes. And given that we don't actually know concretely who's done it and everything's also just speculative, it's difficult to say for certain what particularly caused the individual or individuals in this 
scenario to do what they did to the victims in this case. I think that any degree of violence to that extent, like obviously, like we know these murders were not just, they weren't just stabbings, right? They were brutal stabbings. Oh, totally. You know, that, like blood spatter evidence and that takes an awful lot of passion and commitment to the act that they're committing. And I think based on that, there would have to be some sort of error in terms of like somebody's moral code and moral judgment, right? And a lot of times in order for that to happen, it would have had to have been fractured. And in order for people to decide in their head at some point in their life that killing other people for any reason is an acceptable response to any scenario, I mean, that person would have had to experience trauma and had that moral code of theirs fractured at an early age in their life. So I can't really say for certain whether there was mental illness involved, whether, you know, psychopathology was involved, but it seems likely that whoever committed these crimes was both narcissistic and antisocial. Like they had no sense of moral consequence for their actions. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think that most people who kill other people, which is crazy, cannot be mentally sane. It's tricky because you don't want to tie mental illness to violence. No. Because most of the mentally ill population is not violent towards others. No, they're not going to go around killing people. <laughs> no, like that takes a lot more. I don't know. I don't think the terminology of like sane or insane really can accurately describe what would have to go on in somebody's mind in order for them to make these decisions and to follow through with these actions. I think, again, like we go back to that nature-nurture combo argument, right? And like everybody's behavior is sort of the result of their upbringing and what they got from the get-go. And so were there maybe some genetic components that led this person to be more likely to kill people down the line? It's possible. Did this person likely experience some trauma? Definitely. But again, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, we'll, we probably never will. But in this case specifically... I mean, one of the working theories based on that letter was that the killer or the alleged killer did this for somebody else. Or there are other theories that there were co-conspirators, other people involved, other people calling the shots. So that all, like, it's tricky. Hard to say. Definitely not kill someone, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this case is still unsolved after all the evidence? I think that goes back to how poorly handled the evidence was right off the get-go. I mean, the fact that there were, allegedly, again, because this is all coming from when they reopened the case, but there were video recordings where they were never voice analyzed and letters that were never read and, like, witnesses whose testimony was never heard. I think because things were so poorly handled, and they couldn't press charges right off the bat, and they waited too long. By the time they actually acknowledged that evidence, most of their suspects from back in the day are no longer with us. So we can't press those charges, and we can't prove that anybody did anything, because that would, again, require somebody to stand trial, as is their right, and to be proven guilty. And otherwise, the assumption is that everyone is innocent. Which reminds me, I haven't mentioned yet, but Martin Smart and Bo are both not with us anymore. Yeah. And my last question for you is, in your opinion, your personal opinion, who do you think is guilty of these crimes? Personal opinion. It's tricky still because like there are so many possibilities. And I do, I do believe that more than one person 
was involved to some extent um, in terms of actually committing the acts of violence that were committed. I think it's possible it was one person. I think it's possible it was two people. I think a lot of the evidence points towards Marty or Martin. What's his name? His name is Martin, but he goes by Marty. Marty. Yeah, okay. A lot of the evidence points towards him. And given that there were, again, allegedly confessions, circumstantial confessions, and then the therapist who he apparently confessed to, which that is a whole other can of worms, honestly. I don't understand how nothing was happening. Like, yeah, whatever. But that and the letter and the fact that circumstantially, I mean, his son and the people in the room with his son, or I guess his wife's son, they were all unharmed, but everyone else yeah, not in the room with the child. Yeah, do you think that if Justin wasn't staying there, the other boys would have died? Probably. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think that there was some level of emotional attachment to Justin, which, again, activated that moral compass, right? Like, yeah. And if you can't kill one person, you also can't leave witnesses no. um, in a crime like that. And not killing one and killing others in the same room would leave a witness. For sure. Your own son or not, right? So there was some link to the Smart family for sure, I think. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, those are all the questions I have for you today, Mally. Okay. Um, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Anytime. I really can't seem to wrap my head around this case. I mean, it's truly brutal and insane, and it's so creepy. How could someone do this to anybody? I really do feel for their surviving family members, and I really hope they had healed by now. Who do you guys think killed Sue, John, Dana, and Tina? Let me know your thoughts on Twitter. Thank you for tuning in to my second episode of the Mysterious Incidents podcast. I'm here every Wednesday on Spotify and Transistor. Be sure to stay tuned for my next episode. We're going to be discussing an urban legend, which most people know of. I hope you all have a great rest of your week. Bye!